chapter 10. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Mark 10, starting in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Good morning. It's good to be back. I spent all last week in the bathroom. It was our annual project vacation, and we remodeled the bathroom. So every... Yeah, yeah. No rumors or anything, okay? But it's good to be back. I want to thank Anthony for uh, uh, taking my place last week and continuing our uh, series in Mark as he uh, dealt with the first part of chapter 9. I think I want to start with three stories and an assignment. Usually I give an assignment after a study, but today... Uh, Three stories and then an assignment. The first story. You may be familiar with a a former Hall of Fame football coach, uh, Don Shula. He was the coach of the Miami Dolphins. And uh, after the 1972 football season, he was at the height of his popularity. He had just coached the Dolphins to an undefeated season. They went 17-0 in uh, 1972. And uh, uh, everybody knew Don Shula. Uh, He was at the peak of his coaching career and popularity. After the season, he and his wife, Dorothy, went up to Maine to take a vacation. And uh, 
It was just outside a small little town there in the state of Maine. And one of the evenings when they were there, they decided to go into town and see a movie. As they entered the theater and walked in to find their seat, the few people that were there stood and gave Shula applause and ovation. And Shula was kind of taken back by that. And so he spoke up and he, he thanked them, but he said that they really didn't have to give him an ovation just because of who he was. <clears throat> and then one of the moviegoers shouted this out. We don't care who you are. They wouldn't start the movie till we had ten people here and you two just put us over the top. Story number two. There was a narrow path along the edge of a mountain. Two goats were traveling from opposite directions, one going up, one going down. At a certain point, of course, they met along this narrow trail. And it was too narrow for them to pass each other. The two goats backed up, lowered their heads as though they were ready to fight for space. But then, the goat that was going up laid down on the path. The goat going down stepped on his back and over him and continued on down the mountain. The first goat then got up and continued his climb up the mountain. This goat went higher because he was willing to go lower. Story number three. Noriaki Yamashita lives in Japan. He is an avid golfer. He belongs to a country club there. One day he was playing golf with some friends, and on the 15th hole, on his tee shot, the ball landed on the green, bounced twice, and rolled into the cup for a hole-in-one. Most people would celebrate <clears throat> a hole-in-one. It's rare. But this is what Yamashita said after making the hole-in-one. He said, I know something terrible has just happened. Typically, a, a hole-in-one is a golfer's ultimate prize. Very few golfers make a hole-in-one. And when you do, uh, you become popular. People applaud. You get your name on some kind of board in the country club. But this man was not excited. Here's why. In Japan, the Japanese have a word for a hole-in-one, and I can't pronounce it, but it means albatross. Albatross is the largest seabird. And figuratively speaking, the word albatross refers to a burden, a heavy burden. 
And in Japan, a hole-in-one for a golfer is called an albatross, a burden. You see, in Japan, when you score a hole-in-one, you are required to buy drinks, dinner, and presents for all the club members and their friends. It usually adds up to over $10,000. As a result of this requirement in Japan, there is such a thing as hole-in-one insurance that golfers can buy so that if they should score a hole-in-one, the insurance company will pay for you to buy drinks and food and presents uh, for everybody. What's the reason for this? The Japanese believe that those who receive good fortune and success have an obligation to share and be generous with others, not be put on a pedestal and exalted by others. Your assignment. These three stories have something to do with our study today in Mark. I'm not going to come back to these three stories again. Your assignment is on your way home or while you're at home this afternoon to sit down with family, go back to those three stories and discuss what they have to do with what we will learn in the book of Mark. Okay? So you've got to remember the three stories so that you can talk about what they have to do with what we're learning today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day, this Lord's Day, your day. Thank you for the people sitting here who have chosen to give to you this first part, the first fruit of this day to come and worship with brothers and sisters, and to hear from your word. Father, I pray that you would bless each one who has come by, Lord, working in our lives through your word and its truth, through the teaching of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray for those who can't be with us today. Uh, Wherever they are, traveling, vacationing, uh, not feeling well, uh, Father, I pray that you would be very near to them. Help them to sense your presence. Father, we pray for Anthony down in the cities, Lord. Watch over him as he helps protect homes and businesses. We pray for Shannon Crane's mother as she deals with COVID on a ventilator. And and Father, we pray that you would... uh, Perform a miracle there on her behalf. Father, we pray for all the other needs that are represented here just in our group today. Father, we know that you are very aware of those needs and that you know exactly how you're going to address them. May it bring you glory. Right now, Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would uh, help us to understand the lesson of these scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9.
Tim read from chapter 10, and we will get to that passage, but we're going to start in the ninth chapter. When you think of Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, the fighter, you probably remember that he often, as often as he could, he would announce that he was the greatest. Muhammad Ali had an issue with arrogance. And every chance he got, he made sure he reminded people how great he was. He'd say, I am the greatest. The question is, was he? Is it wrong to desire greatness? I mean, is, is, is it wrong to want to be great? Well, our passages in Mark 9 and 10 today will help answer that question. Chapter 9. I want to read a passage here. And uh, this one starts in verse 33. It says, They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Then he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Let's look at some context of this passage. First of all, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling on the road to the city of Capernaum. What has happened just before this is what Anthony shared with you last week. What we call the transfiguration. Three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, had gotten to have this experience with Jesus up on the mountain. And uh, you thought about it last week. You saw it described. Those three had had that experience. And then when they and Jesus came down, they found the other nine disciples involved in arguments with people. And what had happened, as you recall, is that those nine disciples had tried to cast out a demon from a father's daughter, and they weren't able to. And so uh, an argument um, had started, and that's what Jesus and the three came to. And finally, Jesus does cast out that demon from the girl. That has just happened. And so as they're walking on the road... To Capernaum, 
there's a discussion going on among the disciples. And it seems pretty clear that the discussion is based on what they had just experienced. And I can see Peter, James, and John telling the other nine all about this great experience they had on the mountaintop and what they saw and how glorious it was and how special it was to get to be the ones that went up there and how that maybe that said something about how Jesus viewed those three versus the other nine. And then I could picture the other nine not appreciating the way the three were describing their experience because they'd had a real difficult time down below. And so we find out that as they're walking along to Capernaum, they begin to argue. And we're told that they're arguing about who is the greatest, who among them. You can see how that context, that experience prior to this, probably led to this argument among the disciples about who was greatest. Now, there's one other contextual thing we have to notice here. Notice verse 31. Right before they get to Capernaum to this house. It says, Jesus was teaching his disciples and he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So what has Jesus been telling these men right before they start arguing about who is the greatest? He's been telling them again about what's going to happen to him, that he's going to suffer that he's going to die, that he's going to be betrayed. That's pretty serious stuff. And right after hearing that, they continue on down the road, arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And it becomes a teaching opportunity for Jesus. He asked them, what were you talking about? Nobody dares answer. But he knows, right? And so we're told in verse 35 that Jesus sits down and he calls the twelve to join him. They get to Capernaum. They're in the house. He asks the question, what were you talking about? What were you arguing about? They don't answer, but he knows it's about who's the greatest. And so, so Jesus, their rabbi, sits down. And I don't know if there were chairs in the house, but he sits down. And I can just, I can just see and hear Jesus sitting down with a sigh. And he says, come on guys, have a seat. And can't you picture all 12 sitting there around Jesus as he decides this is a teaching opportunity. And so what does he say? He says to them, if anyone wants to be first, if you want to be first, if you want to be 
the greatest, then you must be last. That's how you get to be first, guys. That's how you get to be great. By being willing to be last. And by willing to be the servant of all. You want to be first, you want to be great, be willing to be last. You want to be first, you want to be great, be willing to be the servant of all. Would that make sense to the disciples? Would that fit with their culture? We know it doesn't fit with ours. It didn't fit with their culture either. You want to be great, you want to be first, be last. Serve everybody. To emphasize the point, look what he does next. This is in a house, so apparently it belonged to a family. There were children there. And the next thing Jesus does, according to verse 36, is he, he calls a little child that may have been running around the house. To him, and this little child comes and stands among Jesus and the disciples. And it says he took that child in his arms. And he says, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. How is he illustrating what he has just taught? Well, in that society, Children would have been among the least of these. Children in that society in that day had no social status. They were basically insignificant. And Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, you need to be willing to be last, and you need to be willing to serve everybody, including the least, including those who have no social status, who are insignificant in people's eyes, and get this, who do not have the ability to repay you for your service. That's his point. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Look at the response. John speaks up. Yes, it's John. It's not Peter this time. John speaks up. And he says, teacher. You can just see John raising his hand. Teacher. We saw a man driving out a demon in your name. And we told him to stop. Because he is not one of us. Was John listening at all? Jesus had just said, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, you have to be willing to be last. You have to be willing to serve everyone, even the least of these, even those who don't have the ability to pay you back for your service. Serve them. That's how you become great. And John changes the subject. 
And he reveals this competitive spirit. He, he reveals this exclusive spirit that he has. And he talks about some guy they saw driving out demons in the name of Jesus and how they resisted the guy and stopped him because they weren't one of the team. They weren't one of the twelve. There's a spirit of superiority there too, isn't there? And again, I can see Jesus just going, oh. In verse 39, Jesus says to John, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say something bad about me. Whoever's not against us is for us. What are you doing, John? Didn't you hear what I just said? Let's go to chapter 10. Hopefully you remember the passage there, starting in, in verse 32, especially 35 through 45 that, that Tim read. This is a little while later. From Capernaum, they start making their way uh, through Galilee and heading down to Jerusalem. And we've already read the passage, so let me give you the context. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Take a look at a reminder of what Jesus had just said before the action of our passage starts. In verse 33, as they're walking along, Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Jesus has just once again told them, shared with them about his impending experience when they get to Jerusalem. And he's very detailed this time. The spitting, the mocking, the suffering, the betrayal, the killing. He's just shared that with them. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That is a dangerous statement to make to Jesus. The gall. There should be a red flag Anytime someone goes to Jesus and demands that he do whatever they ask. And perhaps Jesus went, oh, again. And Jesus says, okay, what do you want? What are you requesting? Verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left. In your glory. What are they asking for? They're asking for the two best seats in the kingdom. 
They're not asking for the throne. Jesus will be on the throne. But they're asking to be number two and number three. To sit at his right and his left. And it's right after Jesus had in detail told them what was going to happen to him. His impending suffering and death. That would be like someone sitting down and sharing with you uh, that they've been diagnosed with some really serious condition. And they've been told that they have to go down to Mayo right away. They're going to have this life or death surgery. And they've already been told they'll spend about two weeks down there in Mayo. The surgery is that major, that serious, that big. The recovery will be that long. And they have just opened up to you and shared that experience that's impending. And right after they share that, the first thing you say is, hey, since you're going to be down there for two weeks, could we use your cabin on the lake and your boat? Pretty insensitive, isn't it? Pretty inappropriate in the moment. John and James have just heard Jesus in detail share terrible things that are going to happen to him. And all they can think about is getting the greatest seats in the kingdom that carry with them the greatest power. Isn't that amazing? The men Jesus had to work with. What happens? Well, verse 41, it's not just John and James, because it says when the ten heard about this, they became mad. They were indignant with James and John. Why? Did they think it was inappropriate? Did they think it was insensitive? No, I think it's because they were upset John and James got to him first. Because remember, they're arguing about who's the greatest. So the other ten aren't off the hook here. And what does Jesus do? He calls them. Come on, guys. Sit down. It's another teaching opportunity. Verse 42, Jesus called them together. And he said, okay, guys, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles in this world, the leaders in this world, that have those seats of power and authority. They lord it over the people. They wield that power. They wield that authority in very prideful ways, like they're lords. And their high officials exercise authority. They flaunt their authority. They oppress the people with their authority. That's how the worldly leaders do it. 
And verse 43, he says, guys, not so with you. Not you. Instead, and he has to just repeat the same lesson, right? It's the same lesson. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Same message, same lesson as the last time. I want to point out something to you here. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to desire greatness. He's not saying that. In fact, he says, look how he says it. Whoever wants to become great. Does he say, whoever wants to become great, desires that, needs to stop it right now? It's wrong? He doesn't say that. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. It's the kind of greatness you're desiring. It's why you want to be great. And it's how you pursue it and how you go about it. He doesn't say it's wrong that they desire greatness. It's their view of greatness and how they're going about pursuing it in a very self-centered, egotistical, prideful way. That's the problem. But he says if you want to be great, you can be. You do it by being a servant. You do it by being a slave to others. That's how you become great. And again, it doesn't make sense. They're sitting there and they're hearing it for the second time. And it still doesn't make sense. Because that's not how the culture worked. But that's how Jesus works. And then he does something that is not similar to the first time in chapter 9. He adds a very important statement. And many believe this is the key verse of the book of Mark. He concludes his little lesson opportunity, verse 45. He says, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, even I did not come to be served. I came to serve. Not only that, I came to sacrifice. I came to give my life to free people. So really he's saying, be like me. Follow my example. 
You want to be great? Serve. You want to be first? Be a slave. Because that's how I do it. That's how I think. I came to serve. Now, you have to appreciate the impact that verse would have, first of all, on the disciples. Because they're all about Jesus ruling. They're all about Jesus setting up a kingdom and them being his cabinet and ruling in greatness with him. That's what they're all about. And now he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life. So you can appreciate the impact on the disciples, but I want us to go back to this. We have been looking at the book of Mark as Mark's endeavor to expose who to Jesus, the Roman people of that day. And we keep mentioning that as he goes through this presentation of the life and ministry of Jesus, the emphasis is on the power and the authority of Jesus, right? Mark shows all this action. He shows all this power that Jesus had, all this authority. And now we come to chapter 10, verse 45, and that person that they have been reading about, that they've been hearing about as it's read to them, who had all this power and all this authority, says, I came not to be served. I came to serve and sacrifice. I mean, would that impact the Roman person? They've learned about the power of Jesus. They've learned about his authority. They've learned about his power over sickness. They've learned about his power over the demonic world. They've learned about his power over death. They've been exposed to his teaching that was filled with authority like no teaching they'd ever heard. And they have got to be impressed with this person. Jesus. As a Roman, you'd be impressed with that power and authority. And now you hear that person say, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve people and to sacrifice for them. Really? This guy is not an ordinary man. Is it even possible to have that kind of authority and power and teach with that kind of authority and yet be a servant and be willing to sacrifice for others? Apparently it is. Because that was Jesus. And he says to his guys, guys, that's what I want you to be. 
The world has its idea of greatness. And it's all self-centered. But not you. Not my people. You want to be great, you serve. You want to be first, be willing to be last. You desire greatness, be a servant. That's how it happens. That's why I came. So, um, some pretty big teaching moments for, for the disciples. And it had to be repeated. And if we weren't so committed to just Mark and not the other Gospels, we could look at a third time in the upper room. Same thing. They just couldn't get it. But what's here for us? I think the lesson is the same, isn't it? You want to be great? It's not about you. You want to be great? It's about being a servant. You want to be first? It's about being willing to be last. Turn with me. This doesn't break the rules because it's not a gospel. Turn with me to Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Just to show you that this kind of teaching continued to be presented even after Jesus left. Okay? The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, he says in verse 13, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's how you use your freedom in Christ. You serve. That's how you do it. And then you go to Philippians chapter 2. And I think Paul really summarizes what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Ambition is not wrong. Selfish ambition is what's wrong. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, pride, but in humility. Consider others better than yourself. Isn't that what Jesus was teaching his disciples? Consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests. That's all we do every day. Jesus says, each of you should not look just to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. That's what a servant does. How can I help you? What are the needs? In verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And Paul describes what Jesus said to his disciples. He didn't come here to be served. He came to serve, to be a servant. And to give his life for others. So it wasn't just a teaching for the disciples, those 12. 
Paul continues the teaching for all of God's people. And so, friends, let me wrap it up this way. We, as the people of God, as the followers of Christ, are called to servanthood. It's pretty clear. We're called to servanthood. And that is the standard for greatness. It's not wrong to desire greatness. Jesus never said that. But he said, if you want to be great, here's the standard. Servanthood. And that is very countercultural. It was then. It is now, right? Because in our culture, as then, it's all about comparing. It's all about competing. It's all about climbing the ladder ahead of others. It's all about controlling others. It's all about centering on yourself and your own needs and interests. It's all about commanding the recognition and service of others. That's our culture. That's greatness. That's how you achieve it. Jesus says, hey, here's a countercultural idea, and it's my idea. You want to be great, here's the standard. Servanthood. Be a servant. Put others first. Who did you serve last week? Would there even be a list of people you served this past week? Or was this past week all about you? What about the week ahead of us? Who will you serve? Who has needs? How will you serve them? Or will this coming week be all about you? And expecting others to recognize you and serve you. And being upset because they don't. If you want to be first, if you want to be great, be servant of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching of Jesus. Father, uh, he had to repeat this a few times, so we really get it. Father, may we get it sooner than those 12 men did. May we be willing to put ourselves aside and be the servants that you want us to be. Help us to be servants. In the name of Jesus, our example of that. Amen.